Today's scripture comes to us today from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. Especially want to welcome those of you who may be visiting us for the first or second time. If you're here as our guest, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you can now bow your heads and join me in prayer as we ask for the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you for your mercies and your grace. For as your servant Jeremiah once said, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, we pray that no matter what circumstances or situations we find ourselves currently in, no matter what anxieties or fears that are within the bosoms of our hearts, we pray now that you would help us to not be distracted by these things and by your sovereign mercy, enable us to hear everything that you want us to hear right now and that you would minister to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is near, not far away, and that you are with your people as you speak. And God, I pray that as the words come out of my mouth, that you would uh, fill it with power and encouragement for your people so that they would feel fed and encouraged and equipped. And Lord, that you would enable them to go out to be your faithful ambassadors as you call all of us to be. Father, we also pray for those of us here who may be seeking after truth, those investigating Christianity. Father, you know where they are at in their journey of truth. Oh God, would you meet them and minister to them and by your grace bring into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, now we ask that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, life teaches us that ignoring our weaknesses is detrimental to our health. Again, ignoring our weaknesses is detrimental to our health. It could, in fact, lead to premature death. Case in point. Anyone in here ever suffered a severe injury, a broken bone, a broken arm, a broken leg of some sort? If you have, you would know that that part of your body, which was very mobile, had to be immobile for weeks, months, maybe almost up to a year. And one of the things that you probably have experienced if you've been in that situation is that that part of your body that is now immobilized has now atrophied and has now taken on severe, severe weaknesses. And one of the things that your doctors will tell you as soon as you get that brace or that cast taken off 
is this dire warning. Make sure you prioritize in exercising and regaining strength in that part of your body because if you don't, you expose your body to even more possible injury that will lead you closer and closer to death. Now, with that fact, consider this. When you read the New Testament, specifically the writings of the Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, one of the things that you'll notice is that over and over, he uses a parallel analogy of the human body to describe the church, specifically the local church. As you read through the letters of Paul, you'll constantly see him referencing the church as the body of Christ. Ah, now, that fact can serve as fuel to drive us into a deeper understanding of the church that sometimes, many times, we either overlook or downright ignore. And if it is true for the human body to where if you ignore the weaknesses of it to where it could lead you to death, then the parallel lesson could be is that if you ignore the weaknesses in Christ's body in a particular local church, that local church is in danger of closing its doors prematurely and being shut down and virtually being dead. And so the question that I'd like to ponder this afternoon with you is, how do we ensure that as our church continues on that we don't fall into this trap? How do we ensure that we don't ignore our weaknesses? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to ask another one, the more important one, which is, what are the weaknesses of our church? What are the weaknesses when it comes to our church? Well, I would argue that our weakness as a church is really no different than the weaknesses of most churches in America today, specifically evangelical churches like ours today. And according to church experts, the number one weakness that is plaguing the church all across this country is the issue of evangelism, of sharing our faith, of going out and being a blessing by preeminently declaring and sharing our faith by living it out and by actually sharing it with those around us. And a According to a recent extensive study done by Barna, more and more evangelical Christians are sharing their faith less and less. Listen to what Barna says in this study. He writes this, quote, The least likely to share their faith, perhaps unpredictably, are actually those in the middle-income bracket. This is particularly paradoxical since born-again middle-income adults are the most likely out of all income groups to affirm their personal responsibility to evangelize. 76% do so. Yet, only 37% of those adults have shared their faith this past year. Furthermore, born-again middle-income adults are evangelizing less and less. For example, from 2010 to today alone, their outreach efforts have dropped from 51% to 37%. Interesting. Given that most of us in here come from probably a middle income bracket, I think this is a dire warning for us as a ministry, as it is a dire warning for every ministry that is in this same context that we are in. And so the question that I want to address is, how do we ensure that our current weakness does not become our downfall? How do we ensure that NCF, KCQ, will continue on Because we are not neglecting this very, very crucial, important thing that has been the genesis of the church and has allowed the church to continue on for over 2,000 years. How do we address this issue of evangelism? Well, that is what we're going to talk about as we're continuing our series, Views of a Healthy Church. We're going to take a healthy view of evangelism according to Scripture. And this is the text that we're going to look at where Jesus is going to address this very topic of what it means to evangelize. And specifically, he's going to show us the method, 
how we do evangelism. And so, as we take a look at our text in Luke chapter 10, three things that I'd like to share with you about evangelism, specifically as it pertains to an evangelism known as oikos evangelism. I'm going to talk to you guys today about oikos evangelism. So, three things I want to share. First, who is to do oikos evangelism? Number two, what in the world is oikos evangelism? And finally, how to do oikos evangelism, all right? Who's to do it? What in the world it is? and how to actually do it. You ready? Let's jump right in. First, who is to do oikos evangelism? Now, before I explain to you exactly what in the world oikos evangelism is, let me first address on who actually is supposed to do it. Let's read our passage again, starting in verse 1, where it says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and places where he himself was about to go. Now, For those of you who grew up going to church, if you grew up going to Sunday school, reading the Bible, one of the things that most of you have probably figured out is that Jesus had 12 disciples, right? Most of you guys who grew up going to church know that, right? You guys know, right, the 12 disciples? Okay, yeah, we have a hand back there. Good, you're paying attention. 12 disciples. Now, maybe you can't figure out all the names, right? You should. Shame on you if you don't. But you know who they are. You know their names. You know their background, right? We all know that Jesus had 12 disciples. But interestingly, here in our passage, we discover that Jesus actually had more than just 12 disciples. Our passage tells us that Jesus had actually over 12, in fact, 72 for that matter. But here's what's interesting about this 72 group. We don't know who they are. Unlike the 12 who are famously known throughout the world, we have no idea who these 72 were. We don't know their names. We don't know their background. In fact, this is the only time in the entire New Testament where we actually come across that Jesus actually had 72 other disciples, okay? And yet, if you compare how Jesus sends out the 72 to do the work of evangelism and you compare it to how Jesus sent out the original 12 to send out to do the work of evangelism, you find that it sounds virtually identical. Let me prove it to you. Let's go to the previous chapter, Luke chapter 9. This is where Jesus sends out the original 12 to do the exact same thing that he calls the 72 to do. Listen to what it says. And he, Jesus, called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Interesting. The commission of the 12 to do the work of evangelism sounds virtually, functionally identical to when he sends out the 72 disciples. Now, why is this such a big deal, Pastor John? Why are you getting so excited about it? I'll tell you why. If you consider that these 12 disciples, with the exception of Judas, the betrayer, later on become leaders of the early church, the point is profound because what Jesus is essentially teaching us is the work of evangelism is not limited to just the leaders of the church. Let me say that one more time. The responsibility to do the work of evangelism is not limited to just the leaders of the church. You know who else is responsible for the leaders? For the work of evangelism, even that no name, nobody that no one knows about, that follower of Jesus that no one knows exists, like the 72, for example, or like you, like me, right? 
The work of evangelism is not limited to those who simply have the title pastor or reverend in front of their name. No, the task of evangelism goes beyond just the leaders of the disciples. It goes to every disciple. In fact, this is verified based on what Jesus says in verse 2. Listen again to what he says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The work of evangelism is the responsibility of every Christian. Doesn't matter if you haven't been to seminary. Doesn't matter if you have been to seminary. Doesn't matter if you are a pastor. Doesn't matter if you're not a pastor. Every follower of Christ is called to do it. It's not just the paid professionals who are called to do this. And this is something that I hope none of you have this mindset that it's only those in leadership or those with the titles who are called to do this. No, every follower of Christ must and is called to do the work of evangelism. Consider these words from Bill Hybels, a very well-known pastor in Chicago called Willow Creek. Listen to what he says. He writes this, quote, On average, 30% of the people who approach me after weekend services at Willow have one thing on their minds, how to get one of their lost friends or family members found. Each time I ask the same question in response, why don't you help point them to God? Almost always their response is, I could never do that. I just wouldn't know what to say. That really is not my gift. I would screw it up. And anyway, that's what you professionals are for. The Bible puts a different spin on things. Simply put, if you are a Christ follower, then you are called, equipped, and expected to share the gospel. No exceptions. If you are a follower of Christ, then you have the burden, just as I do, to make sure that you're living out and sharing the gospel that you have received from Jesus. That is the point. Now, maybe some of you in here, maybe hopefully all of you in here already know this. You already know, you know, pastor, I know that this is my responsibility as much as it is yours. You know, that's not the problem. You know what the problem is, Pastor John? I'm very bad at it. I have some horrific stories of me trying to share my faith, and honestly, I have not had any good luck at it at all. In fact, I've done some terrible things. In fact, I've got people running away from Jesus even more after I attempted to do evangelism. How do I do this, right? How, how, how? I mean, isn't that the uh, preeminent question of today? How do we actually do this thing? Because sometimes it feels like you need a PhD in evangelism to do it. And, of course, going to your local Christian bookstore doesn't help. Because if you do and you go to the evangelism section, it's like a massive cornucopia of books everywhere. And there's all these different methods and strategies and all these different kinds of tactics of how to do it. I mean, there are weird kinds of books out there when it comes to evangelism and different methods. Maybe you've heard some of them, right? There's door-to-door evangelism. There's uh, shotgun evangelism. What's shotgun evangelism? There's, uh, what is it? There's latte evangelism. There's actually a book called Starbucks evangelism. You ever read that one? Don't get it. It's bad, right? <laughs> there's actually a book called The Celtic Way of Doing Evangelism. It's like, what's the Celtic way? Maybe there's a Korean way of doing evangelism. I don't know what it is, right? There's all these books and all these strategies, and you just feel so paralyzed. Like, what can we do? And you almost feel like it's pointless and hopeless because it just seems like it's overwhelming. But you know what? Jesus shows us in this passage that that is not the case at all. In fact, in our passage, I believe Jesus shows us a clear and simple method, a common sense method of how to share our faith. And to show you what that is, let me go to my next point, what oikos evangelism is. Now, I'm willing to bet that prior to this service, you probably never heard the phrase oikos evangelism. In fact, you probably never even heard the word oikos 
Unless you're thinking about the Greek yogurt that you pass by at the grocery store, right? And you're thinking, what is Oikos, man? It just sounds like something that a bunch of Brooklyn hipster Christians would do, you know, hand out free Oikos Greek yogurt as you're handing out tracts about Jesus, right? Is that what it is, PJ? No, it's not. No, oikos evangelism is actually the method of of sharing the faith that I believe Scripture here in our passage teaches us. And you're like, wait a minute, Pastor John. We just read this passage together, and not once do we come across the word oikos. I don't see any oikos here whatsoever, right? There's no oikos. How can you say this text teaches us how to do oikos evangelism when you don't even see that weird word oikos in it? Ah, but it is there. Christian, did you forget that the New Testament wasn't written in English originally? You remember what language it was written in? It's Greek. And oikos happens to be a Greek word. And you know what the English equivalent is? House. Oikos is house. Now, did you come across that word house in our passage as we read it? Many times, right? Starting in verse 4, we read, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in that same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborers deserve his wages. Do not go from house to house. There it is. House, oikos, evangelism. House, evangelism. Now, just so you don't misunderstand, when Jesus is referring to house, he doesn't simply mean the physical structure where a family lives in. You see, in the ancient world, oikos, or house, was a much broader term that basically meant all of your social networks, all of your connections. These are the people who are part of your biological family. These are also your employees, your slaves, which is what employees were in the New Testament world. They also include business partners who help you build up your household, that build up your oikos network, right? These are the people that you did life with. These are close friends who were like family, as if they were members of your household, right? That is what an oikos is. Oikos is all of the various social networks that you have in your life. Listen to this quote from missiologist Thomas Wolfe. He's a professor of missions at Golden Gate Seminary. He further defines it this way, quote, An oikos is a social system composed of those related to each other through common ties and tasks. The New Testament oikos included members of the nuclear family, but extended to dependents, slaves, and employees. Oikos members often lived together, but always sensed a close association with each other. An oikos was a fundamental and natural unit of society and consisted of one's spheres of influence, his family, his friends, and his associates. So here we see that the term oikos is basically referring to your social networks, the people that you have some commonality with from a social standpoint. If you think about it, we all have this. We all have some sort of social connections with people because we have some common social connection with them. Let me give you a couple examples. Can we have it up there? For some of us, we have connections with people socially because we share a common blood, right? These are family members, right? These are our kin. These are people who we share a biological connection with. Then there are those who we share a common history with, people that we went to elementary school with, people who we attended KCQ with, people who we have some sort of childhood, adolescent, high school history that reaches far back, and because of that history, we have this connection. Then there are those to whom we have a common interest with, right? Maybe they're into MMA, right? And you like MMA, and now you have this MMA oikos connection, right? Or maybe you're into Star Trek, and they're into Star Trek, or, or whatever, some common interest that binds you together, 
okay? And then there are those whom you have common tasks with. These could be coworkers. These could be people who are peer professionals. You're a doctor. They're a doctor. You're a mom. They're a mom. You're a full-time student. They're a full-time student. Some sort of task-oriented connection that makes it natural for you to build a relationship on. And then, finally, there is the common geography. This is your neighbor who lives right down on the bottom of your floor, right across the street. Or maybe this is that guy who you always see at the, at the coffee shop that you love going to and you have kind of like that weird casual conversation that can easily springboard into something deeper. We all have some sort of social connection due to the common social ties that bring us together. These are the various oikoses in our lives. And according to Jesus, these are the people that we should be thinking about and praying for when we consider about who are we going to share our faith with. And this is something that many of us probably don't think of because when we think about who we share our faith with, it's typically not these people, right? And yet Jesus says in our passage, yes, those are the people you should target. Listen to what he says in verse 4. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. What is Jesus saying there in this verse? He's saying, look, if you want to do evangelism, You don't have to pack your bags and get a bunch of money and travel to some other part of the world where you don't know anyone and no one knows you just so that you can share your faith, right? You don't have to travel far extensively and go looking for who are you, who is this person that I'm going to share the faith with. Look around. Consider the people in your various oikos and your various social networks right now who God has providentially brought into your life so that you could be the unique Christian and make those connections for them by sharing the gospel, by living it out. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't need to go all out and go on an all crazy expensive trip, right, and disrupt your natural rhythms and your natural routines of family, work, school, recreation. No, look into the people who you do recreation with. Look into the people that you do school with. Look at the people that you have in your family and consider who are the people in those areas that you could share your faith, who you could live out your faith and bring credibility to the faith that you hope to share with them eventually, right? That is what Jesus is saying. And interestingly, if you look at the data, if you look at the research that a lot of church experts do today, over and over, it says the number one reason, the number one reason why most people in America become Christians and get connected into a church is not because of some great program that they do on Easter and Christmas. It's not because of some flamboyant, charismatic speaker preacher. It's not even because of some food drive or mercy event that they do. No, the number one reason is, take a look at this chart. This is the Institute for American Growth chart. And these are the answers that they provided to the question, who or what is responsible for why you became a Christian from a human standpoint and why you're at church? Look at the answer that had the highest percentage, a friend, a relative. Clearly, oikos evangelism, evangelism to where you are connecting with people already in your social networks, is the most fruitful and has been the most consistent method of evangelism that God's people have been doing, okay? Oikos evangelism is simple, it's clear, and it also happens to be the most natural way in which the church has been doing evangelism for over 2,000 years. Now, some of you are hearing this like, you know, Pastor... I don't necessarily disagree with anything with what you say. It makes a lot of sense, but here's the problem. I don't have any luck at it. You know, maybe you had tried in the past of trying to share your faith with your brother, your sister, 
a schoolmate, you know, a coworker, and it just blew up in your face. Maybe they blew up in your face and like, get out of my face with your Christianity stuff, right? And you get so discouraged. And you feel like, Pastor, what you're telling me is something that I've already attempted and I've had no luck at. In fact, I've done really bad at trying to share my faith. In fact, I rather prefer packing my bag, saving up some money, and go off to China or go off to Africa and share my faith with a complete stranger. That's much easier than trying to share my faith with those in my own household. How do you expect me to do that? I've had no good success rate at that whatsoever. Great question, and this leads me to my final point, and we're going to linger on this throughout the rest of the message, how to do oikos evangelism. You know, if we take a closer look at what Jesus is teaching here in our passage, he tells us there are five things, five things that we need to remember when we attempt to do this kind of evangelism, and they are the following. Number one, remember prayer. Remember prayer. Number two, remember community. Number three, remember genuine needs. Number four, remember the person of peace. And finally, number five, remember the gospel. I know that's a lot. Please bear with me. I'm going to try and go as fast as I can. But these are the five things we need to remember as we seek to do the work of evangelism. Remember prayer, community, genuine needs, person of peace, and the gospel. Okay? Let's quickly go through it. First, remember prayer. If you go to the middle of verse 2, there Jesus is prepping his disciples to do the work of evangelism. And what does he say they need to do in preparation for it? What does he say? He says, pray, right? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, that is so interesting. That is so interesting because if I was Jesus, I wouldn't be saying that. You know what I would say to my disciples? I was like, okay, I'm about to send you guys to a bunch of wolves. All right, you need to be ready for this. So this is what I want you to do. Start studying your Bible. Start studying some theology. Some re- read some apologetic books. Read Case for Christ, Case for Faith, Case for Christmas. Read all those Case for Christ books, Right? And learn as much philosophy as you can so you can be ready to answer those wicked, pagan, atheist philosophers who try to argue against the existence of God, you know, or how to solve the problem of evil, right? Just get ready mentally. Just be ready to argue back at them and just, just tear them down in their arguments, right? That would be kind of like my mindset, right? Prepare, arm yourself with, with words and knowledge and arguments so that you can put them in their place where they have no choice but to accept Jesus, right? But that's not what Jesus says. He says, don't do that. He says, pray. Pray. Isn't that interesting? Why pray? Well, think about it. Think about when you pray. When do you find yourself in moments where you find a desperate need and a desperate urge to pray? When? Isn't it usually in situations where you have no control of it? Isn't it normally in circumstances where there's an outcome where you are completely powerless of figuring out how it's going to turn out? Right? Maybe you're in the hospital waiting room and you're praying because you're hoping that the doctors is going to say something to you that you want to hear, that you have no power of getting that specific answer. Right? Maybe it's in the lobby of a school admissions office and you have no power, you have no control of what that person is going to say. We pray when we find ourselves confronted about how helpless we are, how powerless we are in circumstances and situations that we have no control of the outcome, Right? And that's the first thing Jesus wants us to remember. That's why he says that we need to pray. When you go out and do the work of evangelism, you need to be reminded of how powerless you really are when it comes to the outcome of evangelism. You are absolutely powerless when it comes to how people are going to react and respond to your sharing of the gospel with them. And if you think you're capable of that power, that you have that ability... 
you are setting yourself up for major unnecessary guilt, major unnecessary shame, and major unnecessary discouragement. Scripture makes it clear the power of conversion, the power of regeneration, the power of being born again does not reside in you. It does not reside in your arguments. It does not reside in your brain and your reasonableness. It does not reside in how persuasive you are. It fully and exclusively resides in the power of God and God alone. And you have to remember that because, again, if you don't, you are setting yourself up for some major, major discouragement. Listen to how one pastor how he explains his own experience of this. This is Steve uh, Shorgren. This is what he said, quote, Seeing myself as an evangelist, I saw it was my responsibility to bring people into a relationship with Christ. I had approached evangelism as a high-pressure activity with the majority of the pressure placed on me. Most of the time, I was feeling personally guilty for not being more successful. I would also, I would also pressure on those uh, hearing the gospel, usually in the form of fear, which I swung as an axe over their heads. Many times I would prematurely push people to pray regardless of how they felt or what they understood. On the many occasions I succeeded in getting a stranger to pray a sinner's prayer with me, I wondered how many did so just to get me off their back. Evangelism is something we're all called to do. But in terms of the results of evangelism, that's not our responsibility because that is not within our power to make it happen. The power of effective evangelism resides in God. God simply calls you to be faithful in obeying the command to share the faith. He does not hold us responsible to the results of that effort, okay? And that's what we need to remember as we do that, as we do that practically by praying before we do anything else, okay? So that's the first thing we need to remember. We need to remember prayer. Number two, the second thing we need to remember when it comes to evangelism is community, community. Listen again to what it says in verse 1. And this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Interesting. Jesus does something that's very un-New Yorkish, <laughs> if I could use that phrase. He takes his labor force and he cuts them in half in effectiveness. He has 72 people and he could send them out as individuals to reach 72 people, but instead he pairs them up into twos to where now these people can only reach half of that, 36. Jesus, why are you pairing people up? Wouldn't it be more effective? Wouldn't it be more efficient? Wouldn't you reach more people if you send them out as lone ranger evangelists, have them go out and just reach as many people as possible? Why are you pairing them up? Why are you putting them together? They're not going to reach as many people. What's going on, Jesus? How is this effective? How is this efficient? What's your thinking? Well, consider what it says in Matthew 18. I think we get a key as to what Jesus is thinking. Starting in verse 19, this is Jesus talking. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. What is Jesus saying here? He's basically saying, look, when Christians come together as a community, even the smallest possible community, just two Christians, God is with them in a way that he is not with them as private personal individuals. There is something about the saints coming together and forming community where God is more present, more palatable, and more at work than he is when it's just one solitary individual. And if you think about it, isn't this true? Christian, I would hope this is true of you with what I'm about to say, but aren't there Christian friends in your church or in your fellowship on campus to where whenever you're around them, they just encourage you? inspire you to think and act more Christianly? 
Aren't there Christian brothers and sisters in your life to where whenever they're around you, they just bring the Christian out of you, right? Not that it's hidden deep, but it's just, there's something about fellowship. There's something about mutuality and, and, and friendship in Christianity that just makes you want to be more Christian. Now, I'm not talking about being fake. I'm not talking about just being around Christian people and you put on a Christian mask. I'm genuinely talking about how friendships and social connections with people who you share Christ with are able to inspire you and motivate you to live up to the potential that God has called you to live as a follower of Christ. I mean, we see this in other categories, right? I mean, for you college students, don't you love studying with study partners, especially the smart ones? You avoid the dumb people, right? Even though the dumb people always want to study with you, you're like, no, 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 I, I can't meet with you, right? But you always want to find that study partner in the beginning of the semester. You still go to class, and he's like, all right, who's the smart one in here? And you say, hey, I'll buy you a coffee. Let's hang out, right? Or when you want to work out, you don't work out at the gym. You find the, you know, the brother who's going to lift weights with you, right? Someone who's going to call you out and slap you across the face like, you can do it, right? Like, yeah, the workout partner, right? You guys know in other categories of life that when you have someone who is also with you in something, just something happens. You get motivated. You get inspired, right? You get encouraged to where you want to do something that you would normally not be energized or motivated to do if it was just lonely you. And that same idea is true when it comes to living out our faith. I mean, I can't tell you personally how many times how I've personally benefited so much when it comes to doing personal evangelism. You know, I, by nature, am a very introverted person. I'm a very shy person. And you're like, what? How can you be doing what you're doing now? It's true, right? I love speaking to you publicly, but if you come talk to me privately, I'm going to be like, sorry, i got to go to the bathroom. You talk to Sarah. <laughs> That's why I married Sarah. No, I love Sarah, but my wife is like, like extroverted, right? Big time, to the point where it's annoying. I love her, but she can be sometimes annoying with her extrovertedness. And yet, look, God has brought us together, and in certain ways, we're able to do ministry that we could never do as effectively if it was just us as solitary individuals. And that is true of evangelism as well. You know, there are some people who are very sensitive to people's private need for space, personal boundaries. Those are the introverts, right? But they're the ones who are so anxious and making that first step of saying, hello, can I talk to you about Jesus? But then you have those extroverted guys, like, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus, right? But yet they have a problem of not respecting boundaries. And you put these two together, man, what a force, what a force they could be. And there are so many stories of like that where Christians come together covering over each other's weaknesses, but also mutually enhancing the strengths of the individuals and benefiting from it. This is why as a community, we have community groups where we make evangelism as one of the top priorities of our community groups. Because really the community groups are really the perfect places where we can start living this out, where we can use each other's personalities and strengths and cover over each other's weaknesses and issues so that we can have more credibility in sharing the faith that God calls us to share. So clearly community is very, very important when it comes to evangelism. Do not do it Lone Ranger style. Do not do it because you simply will not be able to do the work as effectively and as efficiently as God has called us to do. So that's the second thing we need to remember, community. The third thing we have to remember is genuine needs. Genuine needs. Read again verse 9 with me where Jesus says, Heal the sick in it, in the households, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Here Jesus is reminding us that when we seek to do the work of evangelism, we need to make sure that we do it with the mindset of the whole person. 
And what I mean by that is that when you share the faith, you're not just using your words. You're using your hands. You're using your feet. You're using your resources, right? When you do the task of evangelism, and if you only think that involves just sharing the gospel with your words, you're missing out on the key component. We are called to not only just share words, but to share our lives, to share our creativity, to share our money, to share our resources so that we can meet other needs, right? physical needs, material needs, relational needs. Part of the task of evangelism makes sure that we also know that we're not only feeding people's souls, but we're also feeding their stomachs. Listen again to how Pastor Steve Shurgren puts it. He writes this, quote, We live in a needy world. Their need is our open door for touching their hearts. The question is simply, given our present resources and boundaries, what could we do to touch these people with God's kingdom in a practical way? Each person struggles with the pain of life. Ultimately, all human pain stems from our alienation from God. But some types are unique to specific communities. In what specific ways do those who live in your city need help, healing, and wholeness? As we discover these particular needs and begin to meet them, we quickly quickly gain credibility and a receptive audience. Why are we collecting kitchen supplies for the family at Kings and Shelter? Why are we doing that? What does that have to do with Jesus? It has everything to do with Jesus. Listen, if we're telling the families at King's Inn, look, we love you, and we want to make sure that you don't suffer for all eternity, that's why we want to share Jesus with you, how are they going to believe that, and that we're really being sincere, if we're not really willing to alleviate the sufferings that they're going through now before they hit eternity? How can we credibly tell people to their face, hey, we love you, we care about you, to where we don't want you to suffer for all eternity to hell, that's why we want to share the gospel with you, but we're not willing to lift a finger in alleviating their present suffering here in history, right? The credibility factor is huge. If we're saying that we care enough about you to where we don't want you to suffer for all eternity, don't you think that that also should mean at minimum we should care about their sufferings here and now before they head into eternity? See, meeting genuine needs does add credibility to our sincere assumption behind why we're sharing our faith. We care about you, we love you, and we want to make sure that you know Christ. That this Christ is not just a spirit, but he's also a physical being. Which means he cares not only for your spiritual needs, he cares about your physical needs. If you're struggling financially, if you're not able to put food on the table, if you have a leaky roof to where you can't cover over your family... That is what the church is called to do. This is why we're called to be outwardly compassionate as well. Meeting genuine needs is part and parcel of what it means of sharing the faith when it comes to living out the gospel, okay? So that's the third thing that we have to remember. Remember genuine needs, how we can meet them, how we can minister to people. And then you're ready for number four, which is remember the person of peace. The person of peace, starting in verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace, or another translation puts it, a person of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will not return to you. Okay, so quickly, what Jesus is saying here, because we're running out of time. He's saying this. When you consider all the various people in your social networks, all your various oikos, your work life, your school life, your family life, whatever, your neighborhood life, your KCQ life, whatever, the various people in those networks, and you chart thinking about how you're going to share the gospel, some of them will respond very quickly. They'll respond very, negative, uh, very positively to where they're ready to accept Christ. You go to them like, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? 
Where's the baptismal font? Baptize me now. I mean, there are some people who are just like the low-hanging fruit. They're just ready to receive Christ. They've been waiting for you to come into their lives, right? Those are the people who are the person of peace. Or there are other person of peace where you meet with them for about a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe a couple years. And by the end of it, they're like, yo, I'm ready to receive Christ. Again, another person of peace. There are people in your Oikos networks who God has placed in your life so that you could be that unique individual Christian who brings your Christian friends into the mix so that you together could share the faith with them. But with that said, that also means there's going to be also other people who will not be interested. These are the people who are not the person of peace. They will not be peaceful towards you when you share the gospel with them. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. Don't fixate on them. Don't, don't make it about, oh, you know, if I could get this hardened pagan, then I can overcome that, their, their, their lack of faith and, oh, what will that say about me? Right? It's kind of typical to kind of like how guys always want to get after the hard-to-get girls or the girls want to get after the hard-to-get guys. It's, it's such an ego booster. And a lot of Christians act that way towards non-Christians. Like, oh, if I can get that really bad pagan, oh, yeah, I'm going to be uber-Christian. No, that's not how you think. That's not how you should do it. Jesus is saying, that's not how you approach evangelism. When it comes to the work of evangelism, you need to pray and think about who are the people that God has already prepared beforehand that he is putting into my life that I can share my faith with, that I can live out my faith before. Now, you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds pretty complicated, Pastor John. I have a lot of people in my various social networks How in the world would I even figure out who a person of peace is? How do I figure them out? How do I identify them? How do I know who they are? Well, I love how Rick Warren puts it. He puts it perfectly, and I think it's a very helpful way of figuring out who could be your person of peace. So who are the most receptive people? I believe there are two broad categories, people in transition and people under tension. That's because God uses both change and pain to get people's attention and make them receptive to the gospel. Anytime people experience major change, whether positive or negative, they develop a hunger for spiritual stability. People are also more receptive to the gospel when they face changes like a new marriage, a new baby, a new home, a new job, or a new school. God also uses all kinds of emotional pain to get people's attention. The pain of divorce, death of a loved one, unemployment, financial problems, marriage, and family difficulties, loneliness, resentment, guilt, and other stresses. When people are fearful or anxious, they often look for something greater than themselves to ease the pain and fill the void they feel. Now, according to Rick Warren, I think he's absolutely right on, is that when you consider the various people in your social networks and you say, Lord, who are the ones that you have brought into my life that could be the people of peace? I think these categories of people who are going through major change or going through major pain are very helpful categories. Consider the people in your oikos networks. Are there people in your life going through something so tumultuous Something so painful that maybe God has put you in their lives or potentially in their lives so that you can be a source of encouragement to them and giving them the most encouraging news of all, the gospel. Consider the people in your oikos. Are there people going through major transition? They just had a baby or they just had their third baby and they're ready to just out of sheer desperation just look to anything to be their source of strength. You know, I can vouch for this. I just had my fourth kid and I'm a pastor and I'm ready to ask Jesus into my heart again. You know, it's just like so painful that I'm like, Lord, give me anything. Come back into my heart, you know. How much more would non-Christians who are going through something so tumultuous even need more than I, the spiritual stability of the presence of God in their hearts? The whole point of the matter is, is that there are people who God has put into your various social networks to where you can reach them and no one else can. 
where you can bring your other brothers and sisters to help you ministering to them so that you can exhibit Christian community to these people of peace so that they can see the love of God pulsating through Christian community in a family where they see a support network that is unlike any support network that they don't have. The whole point of the matter is that God has put people into your lives to where you can uniquely reach and who you can bring the Christian community and most importantly the Christian God so that they could find peace and hope that they can never find on their own and that no one else and no other institution can give them. So the fourth thing you have to remember is look for the person of peace. Look for that person, whether that person in transition or that person suffering from brokenness that you can reach and who you can live out and share the good news of the gospel. Now, we come to the final and fifth thing that we have to remember when it comes to evangelism. And this is the most important. I want you to listen carefully, and we're going to end it on this, but it's also going to be the longest portion of the message. And that's this. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Read again verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is sent before you. Now, this is weird. (laughs) Why is Jesus saying, look, I'm going to send you out to evangelize, and this is very important. It's going to be so crucial to your mission. Eat whatever they give you. (laughs) It's like, really, Jesus? What's so special about eating? Well, if you lived in that context and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know this is a huge statement Jesus is making. You guys ever wonder why um, in the Old Testament, God's people had strict dietary laws, right? We call them the kosher laws. We still kind of see it in Jewish communities. You guys ever been to Ben's Deli? Ben's Deli? It's a good deli. It's a kosher deli. And basically, you can only eat their food because everything is kosher. You can't bring any food outside because it's not kosher. One time, Sarah and I uh, took Kara when she was like less than a year old. She was like six months, seven months. Started eating Cheerios, right? So we would pack Cheerios, right, in our bag. And so we were, she's not going to eat like a Ben's Deli, you know, beef sandwich, right? So we, we were sitting there. We're feeding her Cheerios. And the waitress like, uh, excuse me, sir, where'd you get those Cheerios? Did we give you those Cheerios? Like, no, we brought them home. Oh, no, 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 no. Those aren't kosher. <laughs> Get, get that Gentile-ridden Cheerios out of here. We'll, we'll give you Cheerios of our own, right? We have kosher Cheerios, right? It's still there. Why did it even begin? Why did God, in the days of the Old Testament, why did he have these strict dietary laws? Well, here's what you have to understand. In the days of the ancient world that was still prevalent in the days of the Bible, of Jesus' day, they had this notion known as table fellowship. You see, people back then, they didn't just eat just to satisfy their hunger. Eating was a huge social protocol. People ate together when there was relationship, when there was partnership. So, for example, when nations were at war and they finally made a peace treaty, you know what they would do? They would eat crazy meals for like days and days and weeks. They would celebrate. When they would have arranged marriages, what would they do at the end of the marriage? They would eat constantly, right? When business partners went into business for the first time, what would they do to seal the deal? They would eat. Eating was a symbolic act of saying, you and I, we are friends. We are brothers. We are partners. We are in relationship, right? Now, when you consider that in the days of Israel, all of the neighbors surrounding Israel were a bunch of pagan, God-hating people who worshipped idols. You can understand why God says, look, don't eat pork. Don't eat grasshopper. Don't eat horse, you know, don't eat insects because that's what your pagan neighbors do. And we don't want you interacting with them to where they would lead your heart away from me and therefore you'd worship Baal and sacrifice your children and do cannibalism and do all that crazy stuff. The whole point of the dietary laws in the Old Testament was to maintain 
God's people's devotion to him because he didn't want his people interacting with uh, the pagans who hated him. Because once you have that table fellowship, once you have intermarriage, God's hearts, God's people's hearts would go away from God himself, right? But here's the thing. God's people, as they received these dietary laws, had a very perverted interpretation of it. 